Hello, and welcome to another emergency episode of Prosecuting Donald Trump. Well, Mary, I think we just did an episode yesterday morning. Almost 24 that, hours ago, exactly. Yeah, but if you had said 24 days ago, I would have said, yeah, that's about right, because that's what it feels like, and um, maybe in, like, dog years. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I think this could be a little bit of a rough episode on my side, <laughs> because... I was on MSNBC from, uh, what, I think 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. Thank God my dog has a really good bladder Um, because I was supposed to be able to go home and uh, walk him and do all this great stuff. So I'm going to probably get a lot of comments about how I'm treating him. But he seems no worse for the wear, unlike his his, uh, owner. (laughs) Well, it's an important day, so... Thank you yes, for your service. Yes, it was a very important day. Yes, thank you. Yes. So anyway, Mary, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely not be interrupting you today because uh, I'm gonna be just bleary. So anyway, obviously we're back because we were talking a lot about uh, the indictment, what we expected, uh, and uh, now we actually, in the last 24 hours, have the indictment. We have uh, a short press conference from Jack Smith. And we also have uh, who the assigned judge and magistrate are. So we're probably going to spend most of our time talking about the indictment, what it means to us, things that we observed. And then uh, I'd really like to talk a lot about Aileen Cannon. Uh, we're going to discuss uh, at least what I think is the the way in which she was chosen. And then what, if anything, uh, the government can and or should do at this point. But I think probably before we start, it's probably worth just noting that uh, Donald Trump, well, of course, he's presumed innocent, has not missed a beat in attacking Jack Smith. Uh, I'm no stranger to that and have obviously seen it with respect to many other people, but also with respect to my former boss, Bob Mueller, uh, with respect to me, it's not pleasant. But at some point, you really view it as a badge of honor more than anything else. But Mary, what did you make of the indictment? This is really great because, you know, we haven't had actually a chance to to talk to each other about it. All yesterday, when I was on the air, I was waiting for this. Yeah. I will say it was stronger and more devastating than even I predicted. Uh, It filled in a lot of the blanks, sort of the unknowns that... The two of us and others have speculated about, and in particular, I'm talking about Donald Trump's own knowledge and involvement in not only taking the boxes from the White House, but going through the boxes and reviewing uh, classified information, making decisions about what boxes he was going to put back in the storage room and what boxes he was going to conceal. And I'm saying boxes, but really what I mean is classified information, classified documents in those boxes, which he was going to keep for himself and conceal from the government, even when there was a grand jury subpoena for all classified information in his possession. And his involvement personally in uh, obstructing justice and lying to his own attorneys and trying to corruptly persuade his own attorneys that they should not comply with the grand jury subpoena. So to me, it was remarkable in the strength of the assuming, of course, 
facts and evidence to prove every allegation in the indictment, which is what we have to assume because Department of Justice standards require that. The strength of that evidence as it is um, alleged in the indictment is extremely strong. I think the other thing that struck me is the significance of the 31 documents that uh, are the basis of the 31 charges of unlawful retention of national defense information. We have talked about um, the difficulties of the government in going to trial in a case involving the mishandling of classified information because you necessarily, to prove your case, have to prove that it's really national defense information, the disclosure of which could cause serious harm to national security. And these documents, granted, we only have a brief description we are talking about highly classified. Most of them are top secret. We're talking about uh, the U.S. weapons and defense capabilities, as well as defense and weapons capabilities of other foreign governments. We're talking about the U.S.'s nuclear capabilities. We're talking about U.S. vulnerabilities. And we're talking about potential retaliation plans if there were to be attacks. So the fact that the U.S. intelligence community agreed that these 31 documents could be the basis for charges, um, I think to me says a couple of things. One, that the U.S. intelligence community feels very, very, very strongly about the threat to national security from former President Trump's actions, and that accountability and holding him responsible is important enough to lean a little bit forward in terms of which documents they would clear for use at trial. And I think it also could mean that they think the information is already so compromised in those particular documents that that they can be used at trial because they don't know to whom the classified information has been shared and they've maybe already had to change up their own plans and things like that based on those documents. And those will all be things that'll get fleshed out in the coming months. But, you know, those are some initial reactions. And there's another thing I want to mention too, but I've been talking a long time. And that is, I thought it was really brilliant of Jack Smith to include in a couple of different places, Donald Trump's own statements, both before he was the president and after he was president, about the importance of securing our national security. And in particular, in 2018, when he was the president, he said that as the commander in chief, he had a unique constitutional responsibility to protect the nation's classified information, including by controlling access to it. I mean, he is well aware of the importance of keeping these things secret. Um, these are his own words when for his own political purposes, he wanted to say these types of things. And I think that that would correlate probably when he was talking about stripping some former officials like the former CIA director of their clearances. And he made those statements. And I think that was really, those are important things to include in this indictment to show his knowledge and his intent um, in determining I'm just going to keep these materials, notwithstanding that the government has a right to them, they're classified, and should have them back. Wow. Um, so <laughs> it's a lot I, of reflections. It, so, <laughs> it is. And, you know, it's so interesting. And I, th I, I can't tell if this is because um, you and I have such similar work experiences in general, uh, in terms of both criminal and national security, that I had such a similar take to you. And so um, one thing I was going to do is first with maybe do it in a slightly different order, but I would point people to 
pages 28 through 33 of the indictment, which is where the 31 documents are uh, described by Jack Smith, and obviously in the, in the indictment, uh, and it's chilling. And so if somebody wants to sort of quickly see what Mary's talking about, um, I had the same sort of jaw-dropping view when I saw this, and I had the exact same reaction, which was, how in God's green earth did the intelligence community clear this? Yep. I mean, the last time I saw clearance like this was for the two Mueller Russian indictments, where... Um, without getting into the inside specifics, people on our team did a, a yeoman's job of getting that cleared and through with approval for the intelligence community, because this can't just be done by Jack Smith. Um, there are a whole series of agencies with an alphabet soup of, yes. of acronyms uh, that have to approve doing this. And it's a wide range of agencies. And they're listed in the indictment, too, at least some of them, right? Department of Absolutely. Defense, CIA. You know, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Everything. So there's an enormous just just looking at the classification markings. It's top secret, special handling. There's even redacted codes, meaning that it's so compartmented that they don't even want to reveal to the public the particular uh, compartmented program within the top secret classification. But there's a reason for that. For instance, uh, count five. Document dated June 2020 concerning nuclear capabilities of a foreign country. Um, then you go forward. There's uh, count 19 on page 31. Updated document concerning nuclear weaponry of the United States. Over and over again, uh, military operations against United States forces. Yes. Military capabilities of a foreign country. Foreign country support of terrorist acts against United States interests, military capabilities of foreign countries, regional military activity of a foreign country, over and over again. And not only is it chilling that this is, quote, stored in a beach resort, which, by the way, the indictment does a really great job of saying, by the way, if you think these are under a lock and key in a storage room— they dispel that because yep. they go on chapter and verse about how this was not under lock and key and it was open access to myriad people. And Mar-a-Lago is a target of foreign adversaries. And when you read these 31 documents, and by the way, this is a subset of what was there. Uh, not everything, you can tell that from the number of documents that were found versus the number of documents that are charged. Right. And even this subset is um, a honeypot for foreign adversaries in terms of wanting access to get this. So again, I had the same reaction that this was so much more devastating in terms of specifics and to see it in black and white is, um, I mean, I, I last night I was pretty emotional on TV about what it means to our intelligence capabilities. And I kept on thinking about Robert Mueller when he was head of the FBI and how focused he was and the agents were on making sure that the country was safe and that there would never be another 9-11. Um, 
That's what these documents are about. That's right. And I think a lot of people, you know, if you've never been part of that world that we were part of, Andrew, and you didn't sit through those morning briefings with the FBI director going over the president's daily brief, the intelligence documents of the day, which were about an inch thick every day, uh, involve so many things that never make it out into public, but that our national security community worries about and responds to 24-7. I mean, for me, same as you, like this just takes me back to sitting in that situation room hour after hour and, you know, talking with our national security agencies about how to respond to various threats. And, you know, one of the things that's been going on, I mean, we're just now seeing this in the indictment, but for the past year or more at this point, uh, almost two years, our intelligence community has been having to do the damage control, right? Having to talk to our allies and explain to them what happened and what we're doing to mitigate any threats and have had to review our own intelligence collection programs to determine, you know, what might be compromised and certainly what human assets might be compromised. So it's really just pretty incredible. And like I think you said, jaw-dropping to read through what's uh, what's in here. So the other thing I'd, I'd- point people to uh, is paragraphs 54 and 55, which I think are my two sort of favorite paragraphs. And they go to the second thing that you were talking about, Mary, which is really about the obstruction conduct. Uh, And here you really get the sense of how important it was to gain access to Mr. Corcoran and what he had to say. So there's sort of two points about that, which is this proof uh, really doesn't come from FBI agents. The heart of this uh, indictment and the proof that's recounted is Donald Trump's own statements, as you said, Mary, mm-hmm. employees at Mar-a-Lago, employees one and two, who have clearly given evidence and also have text messages contemporaneously, and attorneys one, two, and three. And if you look at paragraphs 54 and 55, they make it plain as day that the former president of the United States, as he has done with Don McGahn, Pat Cipollone, and Michael Cohen, all lawyers, he asked these lawyers to commit a crime. He said, why can't we just lie to the Department of Justice and tell them that we returned everything? Or if we can't do that, That's plan A. Plan B, why can't we just get rid of things? My favorite is a reference to Hillary Clinton in paragraph 55, which is, why can't you do for me what Hillary Clinton's lawyer did for her? And why don't you get rid of these and then I won't get in trouble? Mm -hmm. In other words, why don't you do my dirty work? Mm -hmm. My reference, which I think got lost last night, um, was to Beckett and why can't someone rid me of this meddlesome priest? Right. This is this is basically just like, please do this for me. Yeah. Don McGahn said no. Pat Cipollone said no. Former White House counsels. Evan, Evan Corcoran, Corcoran clearly said no. Said no. That's right. Uh, and he actually looks really good in this because he said no. And that's the reason the boxes had to be moved because plan C was Evan Corcoran saying, no, I have to respond to the subpoena. I have to do a search and I have to say we returned everything over. So you can see Donald Trump's wheels turning going, okay, uh, give me a moment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, with Walt Nauta and me, we're going to just move the boxes. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this goes to, um, the proof, which is, 
it's not just Evan Corcoran. The the people who are doing all of this text each other yes. um, about what's going on so that you have witnesses and texts. So it's really And those contemporaneous texts, Andrew, right? Yes. Those are so important because, you know, juries sometimes are skeptical of, of people's testimony at a trial and that being able to show that, no, 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 I'm not just saying this now. Here's the text from in real time when we were talking about moving boxes all over the place, right? And the fact that, you know, the number of boxes and, and the other thing that's so important here is we actually have specific time frames that had to have come from the surveillance tapes, right? Like yes. by the minute of when Walt Nauta went into the storage room, when he came out, how many boxes he came out with, and then how many went back in. And a whole lot more boxes came out of that storage unit than went back into that storage unit. Absolutely. I mean, it is really devastating, especially because in cases where you are charging a CEO, a senior executive, the defense is, I don't know what underlings were doing. I'm not in the weeds. Uh, whatever they were doing, you know, maybe it was right, maybe it was wrong. I'm not in favor of, of criminality, blah, 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 yep. blah. But here, this is the opposite. You've got a micromanager par excellence, and you've got contemporaneous documentation that that Donald Trump himself was orchestrating it and doing it, uh, and including witnesses. And you talked about contemporaneous uh, texts about this and surveillance tapes. So in terms of the details, in terms of looking at this as a criminal prosecutor or as a criminal defense lawyer, this is a really overwhelming case as at least as set out uh, in the indictment. I should also point out this is a speaking indictment, but you do not put in all of your proof. Right. I mean, it would just be a tome. So obviously this is going to be what they view as the most important evidence, but it is certainly not all of the evidence. And even this is is very strong. Before we move on, there was something that you and I speculated about over the last few days, which would, would there be any dissemination uh, charges? Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, even before reading the indictment, we'd heard about the potentially showing classified information to the two uh, people working on Mark Meadows' autobiography and some other, you know, different um, reporting about Donald Trump sharing. Now, this indictment does go into detail about that particular incident up at Bedminster, where he appeared to be referring to a secret document in his hand about potential attack plans against what's called in the indictment foreign country A, I think, but which has otherwise been reported to be Iran. Um, and he's speaking very casually. See, look at this. Look at this right here. And then and then he's saying, but it's secret. I can't really share it. By the way, can I interrupt yes. you? Even though I said I wasn't no, no, going to no, interrupt no, you. My favorite part of that, and, and this is paragraph 34 for people who are following at home Yes, <laughs> uh, on pages 15 and 16, when Donald Trump is reminded uh, about whether you could declassify. And he's like, oh, it's true. I can't, now that I'm no longer the president, I can't declassify it. Um, and he says, no, now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. The staffer laughs and says, now we have a problem. Right. right. <laughs> Which is, uh, um, no kidding. Yeah. You just talked about the contents of a secret document to people not not cleared and with no need to know. So that's in there. Then there's another allegation about sharing a a classified document, including some mapping with 
the leader of a PAC, a political political action committee, um, which is really which, just oh, and, yeah. and clearly that person is cooperating as well. Yes, that's right. Um, but we don't see a dissemination count. And I think, you know, we talked about the other day, you know, these things could be the basis for another count or they could just be part of the narrative and explaining about, first of all, the part of the decision making and why it's important to charge this, because we now know that there has been sharing, but also part of telling the story of the why, because I wouldn't say motive here is the clearest that it possibly could be. But what certainly appears is this is a man who just wanted to be able to have these documents and show them to people or talk about them when he thought it served his purpose to do so. Now, there could be things more nefarious than that. But even just this shows, again, I go back to what he said himself as president about his constitutional responsibility to protect. And that was just out the window. More prosecuting Donald Trump. 37 felony counts in just a moment. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. So one thing to note about the dissemination paragraphs is both instances involve dissemination in Bedminster that's in right. New Jersey. And that's probably a really good segue because if those were to be charged uh, as dissemination, those um, there's an argument that those should be in uh, New Jersey. Would proper, exactly. Yeah. That they wouldn't be in Florida. The dissemination charge would be in New Jersey. You could understand why the government didn't want to Gild the lily by having multiple charges in multiple jurisdictions. Right. Um, as we talked about 1512, one of the obstruction counts could have been brought in DC, mm -hmm. but m much of the conduct could, could clearly be brought in Florida, which is the decision that they made. Right. Uh, and so the venue for the dissemination would be much harder to justify is in Florida. Right. That may be a reason why it's it's not actually charged, but it is clearly part of the scheme. So um, this is in Florida, and one of the key things that happened, and we went from sort of sort of very um, positive views, I think both of us shared with respect to the indictment, and just how much stronger uh, it is than than we anticipated in terms of the level of detail and the nature of the documents, but. Um, something bad happened from the government's perspective, I would assume, which is that Aileen Cannon uh, is the assigned judge. And um, I can tell you what I understand about how that uh, happened. This may be wrong. So big caveat. Uh, and I think we probably will hear more about this. You know, the first thought was, gee, was this somehow related to her because of 
her prior work on the case. And that's not my understanding of what happened. Um, also, it would be hard to relate a criminal case, which this is, to what was before Judge Aileen Cannon, which was a civil case. That's That would not really be usual. And there is a wheel in Florida, which uh, cases are randomly assigned. But it's not the case that all of the judges within the district would be in that wheel. So one of the things that was checked off uh, by the government was essentially, where does this case arise? And they checked off the box, West Palm Beach. And that's correct. That's right. Uh, so this isn't one where you get to play, oh, what would I prefer to check off? This is, you have to check off what were the facts, what happened? And so my understanding is that the wheel uh, for the judges who uh, would sit within West Palm Beach or Fort Pierce, the sort of adjacent uh, town, is sort of three or four, right. meaning the denominator is quite small. The other thing that could make that denominator small is, and this is um, uh, based on people uh, who had been in the office there and how it works, is that uh, you indicate on the cover sheet when you're filing a case how long the trial you anticipate, how long that will be. Here, they had said at least 21 days. Right. That's considered, I think, a Category 4 uh, case because of different categories of time. And so the wheel might be even smaller depending on uh, judges' availability right. and who's in the wheel for a longer case. Right. Uh, so for instance, if you're a senior judge, you can say, well, I'm only willing to sit on a case. Uh, senior judges have <laughs> ruled the roost yes. because they're all sort of there voluntarily. Uh, but they get to say I'm in the wheel, but you know, not for criminal cases right. or only for criminal they cases. Can opt or out. for exactly yes. or only for a week-long case, right. et cetera. So the wheel might have been smaller. So it may not have been that unusual to draw Eileen Cannon. Right. I mean, there's for people saying, how could that possibly be? The denominator may have been so small that it's just not that unforeseen. Also, I'm told that the magistrate judge then is sort of automatically connected. So this is a judge-magistrate combination that works together um, frequently. And and so if you get one, you get the other. Because initially I was thinking, what are the odds that it would be the exact same judge right. and the exact same magistrate who had had the case previously? Right. Um, obviously, before I turn back over to you to sort of say, what what are the options here for the government? I just want to remind people that Aileen Cannon is the judge who was reversed not once, but twice by the 11th Circuit in fairly scathing language. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't just you're wrong once. It was, it was you were wrong on so many different levels, uh, factually, legally. She also, I think, was fairly rude and peremptory to the special master. If you remember, the yes. special master was a judge in the Eastern District of New York, a judge yes. in the Eastern District. This was a, a fellow With a lot of experience, judge. way more than Aileen Cannon. <laughs> Much more. As a matter of fact, that judge sat on the FISA court. Yes. Um, so, I mean, Very so well, well understood the importance and significance of the classified information at issue. Uh, that judge. Right. And, and it was to me, my mind, I hate to be so disparaging, but it was like, okay, now we have a real judge. Yeah. And now we have somebody who just came off as way, way, way out of her league, um, at best. Right. There are other ways to think of this, but I'll, I'll leave that aside. So, Mary, what, if anything, are the government's options at this point? 
Yeah, so the government can just, you know, stick with Judge Cannon and make its legal arguments and make its arguments for why this needs to get to trial quickly and be prepared to go in on Tuesday and say, here's a proposed protective order so that we can start sharing discovery right away. And, you know, here's the timeline we think it will take for motions practice and a trial and, and request all of that and, and hope that she complies. Um, or they could try to seek her recusal. They could ask her to voluntarily recuse. Um, or they could ask her to recuse based on some law in the 11th Circuit where a judge has you know, engaged in any kind of activity or action or opinions that show such a bias toward one party or the other that they should be recused. And there is some case law, including in the 11th Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals that Judge uh, Cannon's rulings were appealed to in the past. There is some favorable case law there for requiring a judge to recuse uh, when they have shown that type of bias. I will say in my own experience, particularly litigating in D.C., it was very rare that that kind of a motion would be successful because if a judge says they can be fair and impartial, usually appellate judges will respect that. However, it does appear that there is an opening in the 11th Circuit to make this argument. And the real question in my mind is, is will the government do that? Or will the government just proceed along with this judge, again, as part of just being sort of the straight shooters, right? They brought this case in Florida where venue was was solid. They checked the box for West Palm Beach because that's actually where the conduct occurred. So they weren't going to try to game it out and check the box for Miami. They just, in truth and in candor, checked the box for West Palm Beach. They had to know that meant only among four judges as possibilities, and she was one of them. And they took that risk. And perhaps they're willing to go forward. But that does come with its own risks because the judge will control the schedule. And that means the judge could say, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Smith, but I'm not going to schedule this case for trial before 2025. I mean, she could do that. Now, there would be potential remedies for that as well. The government could seek a writ of mandamus, which is essentially saying that the judge is so clear. That's hard. That's even that's harder. Hard. Exactly. But that- I've did, I did that once. One of the first things I did in, in general crimes, I had to mandamus a judge. It was really scary, but we actually won. Yep. But the standard for mandamus is really tough. And it's usually on an obviously wrong legal issue, not exactly. a scheduling issue, right? Not, so, a, not a discretionary call. Right. So I was going to say one thing they, they might do is essentially see how it goes and and try and pick their battles and maybe create a record for recusal right. down the road if she continues to make rulings that are as egregious legally and factually as the ones that led to her reversal uh, twice before. But I agree with you, the biggest risk is the scheduling of the trial date. Some people have talked about whether she could uh, essentially overrule Beryl Howell on the attorney-client privilege issue that led to uh, Mr. Corcoran having to testify. And I think for those people worried about that, the answer is no. She could try, she could try. but that is reversible. I and mean, that is law of the case. And by the way, Beryl Howell, um, on this, it's not only been affirmed by the DC circuit to our understanding, but that is on such strong footing. And even 
if that decision were wrong, the government relied on it in good faith right. so that they'd have a series of arguments. So for those people worried about that, I think that is something that Aileen Cannon could do and she would be reversed. I agree. Um, and in many ways, if she did it, it would just be sort of more fodder, no pun That's intended, right. to remove her from the yeah. case. We now know essentially why Judge Howell ruled that the crime fraud exception applies because we're reading it in the indictment. We're reading how yes. Trump tried to use his attorneys to obstruct justice. And that's pretty squarely within the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. So Mary, um, you know, last time I said, you know, I think we'll probably be talking. Uh, in a few days. And it's funny because time is morphed in such ways. So it feels like the last time I talked to you was weeks ago. But I think we're going to be doing this early next week, which is great because the uh, scheduled court appearances on Tuesday, and we'll be able to discuss that. I think we'll right. know more because the government has clearly signaled from Jack Smith's brief press conference, he did say that he's going to seek a speedy trial. Right. So we'll get some indication about uh, a couple things. One, uh, whether Judge Cannon is going to keep the um, case. be keeping the case. Two, what she says about scheduling uh, will be interesting. There'll be a lot more to report. Uh, on Tuesday, absent, are doing yet another emergency. <laughs> At some point, we're only <laughs> emergencies. We don't even have regularly scheduled anymore. This is like the new Trump world. Yes. In some ways, this was exactly what it was like um, during the Trump administration, yes. where basically every day seemed like That's an true. emergency yep. because there was one, you know, crisis du jour. Uh, he is certainly keeping us busy. But let's just go back to something positive, which is. The indictment here shows just such extraordinary work, both before Jack Smith got on the case, an incredible amount of work to compile this in a really short amount of time, just so people understand. When I looked at this, the idea that this was done in a matter of six to seven months, this takes an enormous, enormous amount of work. And it also uh, is a really good harbinger of, I think, things to come with respect to the January 6th case and how meticulous Jack Smith and his team are and how they build a case. In other words, there's sort of enormous variety of sources of evidence that you see in this indictment. For those people who don't want to read this themselves, our own Ali Velshi is going to be doing a dramatic reading right. <laughs> of the indictment. So if those people want to follow along that way, you'll be able to listen to the indictment. And uh, as many people said yesterday, it is really worth reading, whether you are an old-fashioned reader as I am, or whether you're a new-fashioned audio reader mm -hmm. and you want to listen to the indictment. I think that's just going to be great. It's really invaluable. And for those people worried about whether it's too legalese, by the way, for our audience that listens, is willing to listen to it. That's right. Us, that's Mary, not going to be a problem. I, I doubt that's going to be a problem. <laughs> um, but for those people um, who are a little wary, I can tell you it's really a great read. It is. And I think this is one of the things that's so important, you know, to have transparency and accessibility in legal um, documents like this so that everyone, not just lawyers, can understand it. And it, it really spells it out. It's tight. It's clean. It's clear, it's persuasive, and it's not political. It's just the facts, and the facts are devastating. Perfect note to end on. Talk to you next week. Have a really great rest of your weekend, Mary. To you too.
If you've got questions, you can leave us a voicemail at 917-342-2934. Maybe we'll play it on the pod. Or you could email us at prosecutingtrumpquestions at nbcuni.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with much more. The senior producer for the show is Alicia Conley. Jessica Schrecker is a segment producer. Our technical director is Bryson Barnes. Our audio engineer is Cedric Wilson. Jen Maris Perez is the associate producer. Aisha Turner is an executive producer. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe to the series. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin joins to unpack the Trump trial. One of the big takeaways from this is... Is our system flawed, not in the sense that more people can't access that process, but in just giving that much process in the sense that someone like Donald Trump can abuse it? Most criminal defendants never get the chance to exercise all of their due process rights. Donald Trump is stretching due process beyond its point of elasticity. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow.